So if you're just joining us this morning, we are in our third and final week talking about relationships. Relationships are important to God. In fact, God is the architect of relationships. God has created the nature of relationships with all of their complexities and all of their connections. God is relationship itself. In fact, relationships are so important to God that God gave us Jesus to come to this earth in human form and to show us how to be in relationships. Jesus formed relationships with his mom and dad, his brothers and sisters, his extended family, his disciples. He formed relationships with the religious leaders of the day and all of us, the millions upon millions of people on this earth. And Jesus shows us how to be in relationships that not only honor God, but that are life-giving to all of us. And all of us are in relationships of some form or another. Some of us are married. Some of us are dating. We have friendships. We have work relationships. We have acquaintances. We are created as human beings to be in relationship. We are hardwired to be in relationship. If you think about it, relationships are the delivery system for so many good things that we need in life. Things like love and safety and grace and warmth and truth and feedback and forgiveness. These elements make our lives seem full and meaningful and worthwhile and enjoyable. Without long-lasting, solid relationships, we suffer. In fact, the research has shown that those of us with very few healthy or more dysfunctional relationships suffer more psychologically and have more medical issues throughout our lives. This is how important relationships are, which is why we're going to talk about them again today. In week one of this sermon series, we looked at the question, who are we and how do we come at the world? What are our strengths and our weaknesses? Without some level of self-awareness, it's very difficult for us to grow and change and become like Jesus. In week two, we looked at the question, do our actions show how we feel about someone? If I say I love someone, do I show that or am I short with them and always staring at my phone? How do our actions show our love for someone? Today, we're going to look at conflict in our relationships and how we can move through that conflict towards forgiveness and become peacemakers. And what does that look like in our lives? You know, relationships are great when everything's going smoothly. Maybe you have that new best friend or you're brand new at work and you just love your coworkers or you're newly engaged and you love your potential in-laws. But what happens when we have a disagreement? What happens when we have a problem, when a conflict occurs and words are exchanged and all of a sudden we're like, wow. I'm sorry I even know this person. The problem is, is when that person is your spouse or your best friend or people you work with day in and day out. What do we do? How do we handle conflict? 
This is such an important topic that popular speaker and psychologist Dr. Henry Townsend has actually written a book about this called Who Pushes Your Buttons? You know, it could be that controlling boss who micromanages and judges everything that you do each day. It could be that adult-dependent child who drains you not only financially but also emotionally. Or the detached husband who does not show affection or communicate. Or the blaming wife who does not take responsibility for her side of things. Or that deceptive person who turns everything that you do into lies and manipulation. Or that gossiping relative, we all have them, whose gossip manages to cause divisions within the extended family. The list could go on and on, but you get the idea. What do we do with conflict and disagreement, especially with people we work with, we live with, family members, or people we have to deal with on a regular basis? How can God redeem unhealthy conflict? And what is our part to play in his kingdom work about restoring healthy relationships? To begin to answer this question, I would like to invite you into a story. It begins in Genesis chapter 37, verse 2. This is the story of Joseph and his brothers. You may recall that Joseph and his brothers are the great-grandsons of Abraham and the sons of Jacob. The father Jacob was also given the name by God of Israel, and his 12 sons became the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. In this particular passage, we are at the family homestead in Canaan. This is three years after Abraham has passed away and Jacob has taken over as patriarch of the family. Now Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers and he brought their father a bad report about them. So Joseph is going to tell on his brothers. What he's going to tell, we don't know. But you and I know that a tattletale, especially among siblings, is not going to win you points. Joseph is setting himself up for some very serious sibling rivalry and jealousy. So our story continues. Now Israel, also known as Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. The brothers hated Joseph. They hated him. And here's why. Their father, Jacob, treated Joseph like a prized calf. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, but one love, Rachel. When Rachel died, Jacob kept her memory alive by making Joseph his favorite. Joseph was born of Rachel. Jacob also loved Joseph because he was born to him in his old age. This preferential treatment plays out in Jacob giving Joseph that famous multicolored, beautiful robe with the embroidery on the side. Jacob treated Joseph, his 11th born, like a firstborn. The brothers were so angry towards Joseph that they would spit. They would spit at the sight of him. On top of all this, Joseph, for his side, he had the audacity to tell his brothers of a dream he had. So Joseph says to his brothers, 
We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to it. You can imagine what the brothers must have thought. Their baby brother was telling them that they had to bow down to him. Did Joseph honestly expect his brothers to be excited about this, to pat him on the back and say, we will gladly bow down to you, our favorite baby brother? Of course they didn't. Instead, they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. In fact, the brothers were downright jealous of Joseph. They despised him. Have you ever had a relationship with someone who is jealous of you? Perhaps it's a family member or a coworker. It can be the worst experience because you know that no matter what you do or what you say or how nice you are, that person is not going to like you simply because they're jealous of you. What made matters worse in our story today is that Joseph did not have a clue of how much he was enraging his brothers. And so he goes ahead and tells them a second dream. Listen, he says. I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars are bowing down to me. Can you imagine? Now Joseph is claiming that the heavens, the sun and the moon, 11 stars, his 11 brothers are bowing down to him. The brothers were in crisis. They were beside themselves with jealousy. This family was in crisis. This family was the equivalent of Old Testament patriarchal royalty. Yet on this day, they were the epitome of a very dysfunctional family. They could have had their own reality TV show. There was so much drama. And the brother's response was to kill Joseph, to kill him. This is how deep the resentment of the brothers were about Joseph. They were against him in every possible way. This is a very, very serious story. So the brothers say to each other, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Fortunately, the eldest brother, Reuben, steps in and pleads with the brothers not to kill Joseph. So instead, the brothers strip Joseph of his beautiful robe and throw him into a cistern. The brothers then sit down to eat their lunch, eating venison, passing the wineskins, hearts as hard as the Canaan desert. Their lunch mattered more to them than Joseph. I recall taking my parents to see Andrew Lloyd Webber's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Maybe you saw it. Uh, this was back in the 70s in Chicago, and of course, Donny Osmond was the lead. It was a beautiful production. We sat in the front row cheering him on. I was caught up in the beauty and the lyrics, the talent, the costumes of the story. But the problem with musicals is often they gloss over the grim reality of the actual plot line. The reality of this story is that it is violent and it is grisly. It is about sibling rivalry. It is about unhealthy competition amongst the brothers. It is about unhealthy favoritism of the father. We cannot gloss over the fact that a 17-year-old boy had been thrown into a cistern, an abandoned well in the middle of the desert. 
This was a nightmare for Joseph, laying at the bottom of this dark hole. He must have been scared to death, his voice hoarse from screaming. And it wasn't that his brothers couldn't hear him. 22 years later, when a famine had tamed their swagger and guilt had dampened their pride, the brothers would confess. He saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. So just picture this for a moment. Joseph is at the bottom of a dry, stinky, blackened well, crying out to his brothers, and his brothers just ignore him. On the other hand, for his part, Joseph didn't see this coming. He was oblivious. He did not climb out of bed that morning and say, wow, I'd better put on some padded clothing because this is the day, this is the day that I get tossed into a cistern, left to die in the hot sun. Joseph was completely unaware of the jealousy of his brothers and how he was adding fuel to the fire. Joseph was a favorite. He was also very gifted, but he needed to be a little bit more self-aware of how he was affecting his brothers. Joseph was like one of those good-looking, popular kids at school or those people you work with who get all the projects, get all the promotions, and they manage to rub everybody's face in it anyway. So in all of this family dysfunction, Joseph managed to make the situation worse by not being sensitive to the feelings of his brothers. He needed to learn that how you handle your giftedness, your talents, can be the difference between people loving you and absolutely hating you. You may be thinking, yes, this, this may be true, but certainly the favoritism shown Joseph and the way Joseph acted did not justify being thrown into a cistern and left to die. Just because you're a show-off does not mean you need to be tossed away. Surely there must be some mercy somewhere. I completely agree, but there's even more to our story, more dysfunction to occur. From deep in the pit of this well, Joseph detected a new sound. The sound of a caravan, wagons and camels. This was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. They were bringing spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to Egypt. Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. After all, he is our brother. Oh, oh, so now, now the brothers have mercy. Oh, so selling Joseph into slavery is the answer for them. Really? You can see the deep level of dysfunction here, right? That the brothers think that after all, since Joseph is their brother, they will be kind. They will be kind and just sell him into slavery. As if slavery is way better than being thrown into a cistern. It's amazing what happens when we start going down the path of evil. Sometimes people can make us so mad and hurt us so badly, or we can make them mad and hurt them so badly, but we wish something would happen to them, or we wish that we never met them. It's 
hard to admit, but it is true. So on one level, I guess the brothers are right, that at least they didn't leave him in the cistern to die a slow and miserable death. But selling him into slavery? Wow. A new low had been reached by the brothers. So money was exchanged, and Joseph was handed over to the Ishmaelites, where he was dragged off to Egypt, kicking and screaming. The brothers then took Joseph's robe and dipped it in the blood of a slaughtered goat. They took the robe, the blood-drenched robe, and handed it over to their father, Jacob, who immediately assumed that his beloved Joseph had been murdered killed by a ferocious animal and was dead. And Jacob sat there mourning in a sackcloth covered in ashes. Joseph was 17 years old when he was hauled off to Egypt as a slave. By God's plan and God's provision, Joseph eventually became the ruler of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. Then one day it happened. His backstabbing brothers came to Egypt and bowed down at his feet, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Joseph's childhood dreams. They came asking to buy some food during the seven-year famine that was devouring much of the world at that time. With the tables turned, Joseph could have taken revenge on all of them. But through some clever plans and testing of his brothers, Joseph came to realize that his brothers had indeed changed. So when he could not help himself anymore, contain himself anymore, Joseph reveals his identity and he forgives his brothers. And we hear these words of amazing grace from Joseph. Don't be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done the saving of many lives. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. This is truly an astonishing turn of events. This story should be called the amazing forgiveness of Joseph. But does this level of forgiveness sound familiar? Often our stories in the Old Testament are a foreshadowing of the good work and saving work that Jesus was brought to this earth to do. And this is exactly what Jesus did as he forgave us on the cross, saying, forgive them, Father. Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So friends, who has thrown you into the pit? Who has sold you out? Or maybe it's you who threw someone into the pit or threw someone out Perhaps you're not Joseph in this story, but one of the jealous brothers. Our opportunities to forgive will probably never come in such dramatic ways as this. A member of our family will probably never sell us into slavery. Someone we love will never desire our death. No, we will more likely be faced with much smaller wrongs than this. We may be faced with the hurtful words of a spouse when he or she realizes we've overdrawn the checkbook. Perhaps a person at work will gossip about us or throw us under the bus at a meeting. Someone we trust may betray or defame us. 
classmate at school may call us names. Instead of a direct attack on our body or our life, we will most likely face gossip, a critical comment, a cold shoulder. But even the smallest wrongs can eat away at our souls and our psyches and our hearts if we let it. Unforgiven sin can tangle us up in the barbed wire that can lacerate our souls. Indeed, forgiveness is very difficult, especially, especially when we have been hurt by family members, good friends, and colleagues at work that we have worked with for many years and trusted. But there are many ways to forgive. You can forgive by understanding perhaps why the person is the way they are. Perhaps they've been abused in the past. You can forgive but also choose not to be around that person as the relationship may be too painful, the wounds too deep and still too raw. You can forgive from afar as it releases your heart and untangles the barbed wire of your soul. Perhaps you can make connections with the person through correspondence but not directly in person if the relationship is still too tentative and the feelings too raw. Forgiveness does not mean that you have to reconcile with the person, but what it does mean is that you can give your hurt over to God. You can release your hurt to God to begin the healing process. We can release our hurt and untangle that barbed wire that has strangled our souls for so long. Regardless of the path that you take, forgiveness is a decision. It is a commitment that may take years. It may take special counseling. Forgiveness is not just a word, it's not just a feeling, but it is a behavior. It is a chosen practice, a new habit of behavior whose goal is nothing less than a fully restored relationship, but all in due time. Many times we just need Jesus to heal us, to help us to forgive, to restore us so that we can be restorative and forgiving of others. The bottom line is forgiveness is just plain hard work. The reality is, is that forgiveness affects all of us. We have all had some level of dysfunction in our lives. Look at it, looking at all the people I have prayed with and sat with and listened to in pastoral care, all of us have either been hurt or have hurt others in our lives. Many of us have suffered to such a degree that we have wounds and scars that will never quite heal. Sure, we've probably moved on with our lives. We've had wonderful careers, raised great families. But God wants more for us. God wants us to be part of his restoration and renewal of this broken world. But what does that mean? And what does that look like? How do we learn to forgive like Jesus in this broken world? The answer is in staying close to Jesus in all that we do and going to the cross over and over again in great humility. We cannot do this without Jesus. The book of James tells us, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial 
and sincere. This is how Jesus wants us to be in our relationships, and we can. He wants us to be pure, loving, submissive, filled with mercy, even when we have been hurt by others and even when we have hurt others. We need to submit to God, spend time with God in prayer and scripture, asking forgiveness and asking for God to heal our hearts and transform our hearts. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Jesus calls us to bring peace to this world, to not be passive, but to actively pursue peace in our relationships. And this is the hard part. Jesus calls us not only to love our neighbors, but to love our enemies. Sometimes people have hurt us so badly that it's difficult to fathom that Jesus loves them. But he does. And he calls us to do the same, to love our enemies. Friends, when we do this, we enter into the family of God as his children doing his good work, the work of God in his kingdom, and we become ambassadors for Christ. Last month, my husband and I went up to Calvin College in Grand Rapids as our youngest son, Robert, was graduating with an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering. It was a glorious graduation ceremony, and two weeks before that, we were there again for the senior design engineering projects. This is where the engineering students present their projects they've been working on the entire senior year. It was stunning. They're all dressed up in their suits and they present on these highly technical subjects and topics. Both events were glorious. But what stayed with me was the call from the president to these students and all of the deans saying the same thing, that these students are called to do God's kingdom work in this world. They are called to be part of God's restoration and healing in God's world. And therefore, they will be then ambassadors for Christ. When we become and when we participate in God's kingdom, we become even more connected to Christ as part of his family. As daughters and sons of the king, this is our calling. And it is whenever we extend the hand of peace and reconciliation and forgiveness to others that we become more fully his children. From her book, Invitations from God, author and pastor Adele Calhoun sums this up beautifully. Imagine what would happen if Christ followers took up his invitation to forgive. Imagine the new beginnings, the restorations, the healing. It doesn't have to be something we only imagine. It can be real enough to remake our world. The story of Joseph and his brothers is filled with jealousy, sibling rivalry, hatred, and attempted murder all in one family. It illustrates our human brokenness at its worst. But God... But God has given us the perfect example of forgiveness and love and reconciliation through Jesus. 
And it is through our healing and restorative relationship with Jesus that we can be healing and be the restoration for others. That we can stand with people who have hurt us deeply or we have hurt deeply and love them just as Jesus says. And say the words of Joseph, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Let us all have this posture in the world as ambassadors for Christ, for the saving of many lives. Let us pray. Dearest Father God, help us to go to Jesus when we are hurting. Help us to learn to love and to forgive our enemies so that we can be part of your restoration and renewal in a broken world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.